I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. Except when the light rail goes by and blares its horn because somebody's on the tracks. Anyway, um, I watched a Netflix documentary entitled Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story, and I was so disturbed by it that I want to talk about it. Um, And I will say now, trigger warning for those of you who um, probably about tapped out on hearing about assault, but this documentary, if you have not seen it, um, this documentary does, will, in discussing this documentary and even the reason why I watched it in the first place, um, will lead me to having a conversation about assault against children, different forms of assault against children, um, against um, differently abled individuals, um, and just a very depraved person, um, and arguably persons, but, um, anyway, um, actually persons, I'm going to talk about multiple people. So if that is not something that interests you, totally understand. I get it. Especially for those of you in the, in the UK, you know what this story is about. You, you might know what the story is about. You, you have a better understand. You have a better chance of knowing the details about this story. You might not have watched the documentary, but your family knows this story. Somebody in your family, your parents do. Your parents or some, uh, somebody from an uh, older generation, older adult in your life, knows all about the person, Jimmy Savile, um, or excuse me, the personality, Jimmy Savile, and has probably been dealing with, for the last decade, reconciling their feelings about this person and what this person is alleged to having done. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, so I totally understood if you wanted to bow out. If you are part of my generation and you're from the United States, the conversation that I want to have is one that you and I have probably had, or at least you and I were confronted with in a similar case, not, not known to be as widespread, but a similar situation, some, somewhat similar situation um, that we had to deal with Someone who was connected to a very beloved character, a very beloved figure from our childhood, a very beloved figure that exists today. And, and the connection between Jimmy Savile and the character I'm going to talk about is, is the character itself isn't called into question. It's the person behind the character. So, um, but anyway, just... There's a reason for you to stick around because there's some parallels here. Here, um, And if you're anything like me, you heard of, of Jimmy Savile briefly because the timing was right around the time you and I probably were renewing our mind. We were confronted with some disturbing news that we didn't quite know how to process. You, we probably didn't quite know how to process. And so let me not belabor the point. I'm just kind of stalling to give folks an opportunity to find another uh, Bay Baltimore episode or to do something else or at least to prepare themselves for the conversation ahead. I will do my level best because I'm not I'm not a journalist. 
I work in mental health and I recognize that some information is too much information. You are a thinking, breathing human being who is able to do your own research and read, read accounts on your own. So I won't go into graphic detail, but I am going to talk about assault against, I am going to talk about different forms of assault against different people, different um, young people and differently abled individuals. And that is a hard conversation. So I've stalled enough. Um, Hopefully you made your decision. Okay, so let me move in. So let me first start by telling you why I watched this documentary in the first place, uh, the Jimmy Savile of a British Horror Story. It's really simple for two reasons. The first reason is I pulled up um, Netflix and it was the number one, it was the first recommendation for me. Um, And if you're like me, you stay in your Netflix account watching different things. Um, And so you're always, you may go through your recommendations or you may, um, you know, try something new to try to try to (laughs) correct the algorithm so you get shows that more suit your taste. Um, Anyway, but you know, Maybe you buck the system sometimes, but other times you do watch the recommended list for you because they give you the percentages. For me, it's all about the percentages and anything that's in the 70s, 80s is likely something I'm going to enjoy. I do get 100%, but sometimes because I'm, sometimes I'm just a, if you tell me, sometimes I have this spirit in me. This, this desire in me to do the exact opposite of what everybody expects me to do just because you expect me to do it. Even if I really did want to do that, I don't know what you call that other than honoring. Yeah, sometimes I'm honorary and I, I just do it. Like, for instance, I love Prince. Love him, love him, love him, love him. Um, well, Prince the artist. I do not love bigoted, homophobic, um, adjacent or straight out Prince, I don't like that. But I like his music a great deal, his musicianship a great deal. And maybe that makes me problematic. He's definitely a problematic fave of mine. Um, But I can remember, oh shoot, did I lose my train of thought? Dang on it. Why was I bringing up Prince? Oh, oh, that's why. I am a huge fan of Prince. I always have been. When his Musicology album came out, and I'm dating myself, but when his Musicology um, album came out, I was in college. Prince came to my university. I am an avid Prince fan because of my mama and my my, um, sister that's closest to me in age. I am a Prince fan. I, I have always been. But he came to my college and or my university and because everybody black was going <laughs> my weird butt decided well I'm not going I don't know why I didn't go thank god I had another opportunity to see him live a decade later but like and I actually got to see him up close up uh, closer than I ever would have been able to get um at my university because he was in like our big you know where they play basketball and stuff like that he was in the big college I went to a state college so it was um a big, you know, it was a big um, arena. And so I wouldn't have been close anyway. I I was a college student. I certainly wasn't paying for closer seats. I had that kind of money. 
Um, and if I did, I wasn't spending it on no Prince tickets. You know what I mean? I was going to try to finesse my way to the floor, but I wouldn't have even done that anyhow. But I did not go. And I loved that album. That's what's the wildest thing about it. Sometimes I just do the, I do, do little stuff like that because people expected me to go. I didn't go. And I don't know why. I don't know. It was, you know, maybe that's something to talk through with my therapist. But every once in a while, I do the exact opposite thing that I want to do because everyone is expecting me to do it. Now, it's not a thing of self-harm. You know, excuse me. I didn't mean to say it like that. It's not a, it's not a harming thing. It's not a, it's not a overtly negative thing. It's just I'm anti like that sometimes. That's, that's how I call it. I just get anti. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to do this because you told me to. Now what? And I'm, at the end of the day, nobody really cares. It just makes me feel better. Um, and so anyway, so in, in referencing the algorithms, that's where I was going, y'all. In referencing the al- algorithms, um, sometimes even if you tell me it's 100%, I'm like, no, because I don't like the cover art. Or I watch the trailer and mm-mm. Like um, Old Guard, I know. I, I have not watched Old Guard. Largely because I don't like the... <laughs> I don't like the look of the cover. I don't like the look of the cover, uh, the cover on, that they show on Netflix. And I hated the trailer because I hated the song that was um, tra- played behind it. And again, it's so petty, you guys. It's stupid petty. But um, yeah, I didn't watch it and I never will. Um, probably until I re- forget that this silly stance that I'm, a, that I'm on, uh, you know, this pettiness that I have for not for the show. Anyway. And maybe I'm depriving myself of a really good show. Um, I don't know. It's just not something I'm into. Um, and so anyway, getting back to the algorithm, this, this documentary uh, was the first recommend, recommendation. Um, but this time I clicked it. I clicked the recommendation. I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was 100%, but the percentage was pretty doggone high. And I clicked it. Do you know why I clicked it? Because I looked at the year. I read the like brief synopsis. You know how they have a brief description of the, of the, the thing in Netflix. And it, it's, it shared that, you know, um, it, whatever it shared triggered a memory from 2012. Um, when I heard that um, Jimmy Savile had passed away. But it wasn't so much that I was moved by Jimmy Savile passing away, but rather him passing away and then a reaction to this beloved figure passing away and revelations about how he should not have probably been beloved. And that he, there's a massive story of corrupt, of, well, corruption, there's like undertones of corruption, but the, the key point here is that this person allegedly abused many, many young people over the span of decades. I remember distinctly either seeing that story on CNN, like the, you know, the, the Chiron, scrolling across the, across the Chiron, or seeing, clicking on some article, or watching some news story very briefly about what was unraveling, the revelations coming out following the death of this figure from the UK, or this British figure. And the, 
the reason why even that memory stands out to me is because a year prior, I had, and I don't even think it was a year prior, but so it said, I'm thinking 2011, in 2011, but I don't know if it was like December 2011, you know what I mean? I don't know if it was a full year before um, Jimmy Savile passed, but, and then those revelations started to come out, but um, what is his name? Kevin, Kevin. Not Kevin Samuels. I keep wanting to say Kevin Samuels. Kevin Clash. You might not know the name Kevin Clash. And I'm speaking specifically, I'm speaking specifically to um, people around my, in my generation from the United States. But then again, Kevin Clash was behind a globally recognized and beloved figure that my people in my generation know and love people behind my generation or or before me know and love in what is it gen gen x that's ahead of uh, millennials gen x know and love this character elmo kevin clash was the puppeteer behind elmo and everybody loves elmo Everybody loves Elmo. Many of my friends had the Tickle Me Elmo doll. Or maybe not my friends, but like somebody in their family, like a sibling or niece or nephew, had the Tickle Me Elmo doll. I remember when I was young, Elmo was not my favorite character, but he was one of the characters on Sesame Street that I just loved so much. And even now, if you've been on TikTok in the last six months, you saw um, there was a whole discourse about um, the person who was who the puppeteer who was voicing Elmo, um, who was on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Uh, no, not Jimmy Kimmel. One of those white comedians, um, who's vaguely funny and like network TV adores them. Um, I cannot remember his name. I see his face, but I cannot remember his name, but he was at one point on SNL as a comedian. Um, I just don't watch late night TV like that, but I can't remember his name. It's not Jimmy Kimmel. It's the, it's somebody else. Anyhow. Um, but Elmo, the, the Elmo and his puppeteer were on a show and they were doing a cooking special. And you saw this where, um, there was a whole discourse about, uh, Elmo saying balsamic vinegar. And, and it's funny because most of the black people I knew include, I'm in, in this number. When I heard Elmo say balsamic vinegar, the way that he said it, when he dropped the R and it, and it was A-H instead of E-R at the end, vinegar, and he said vinegar, vinegar instead of vinegar or vinegar or however other people say it. Um, I think I say vinegar. No, I say vinegar. I don't say vinegar or vinegar. I say vinegar. But the way he said it, the way the puppeteer said it, the way they, the puppeteer made Elmo say it, definitely made me think that Elmo was from New York. Seriously. And so when all of these TikTok creators started um, doing these little, I, I, the person I'm thinking about, I cannot remember his screen name, but the person I'm thinking about is a black man and he had, he was a brown skin and he had locks and pretty eyes too. And I can't remember, you know, that, you know, TikTok has filters. So I can't remember, I couldn't, I can't remember if he was using a filter or not, but he had very pretty eyes. Um, and 
he was basically doing a voiceover of the Elmo, that segment um, where Elmo was doing the cooking thing with that TV show host. And anyway, um, um, it, when it gets to the boss, because it, it, what you need to know is if you've never seen that um, video before, Elmo is describing what is teaching the, the uh, talk show host how to cook a certain thing. And then he's like, this is what you need. These are the ingredients that you need for a certain thing. Salt, pepper, vinegar, salt, pepper, balsamic vinegar, whatever he was making. I can't remember what they were making. But anyway, when the point where um, Elmo voices balsamic vinegar, this guy with locks, he, he's starting out in like a button down with a bow tie on it or something like that, like looking like, you know, business casual or something like that. But when he gets to the balsamic vinegar, he does this, this, this cut in the video and all of a sudden he's got a fitted Yankee cap hat on or something like that. Something that's either a Yankee cap or it says New York, you know, in that calligraphy script, that old English script, the New York on it, he's got the New York uh, cap on and he's got like, you know, you, you, you get the sense that he's got Tim's on, he's got jean, he's got denim on and he's got his um, hoodie on, you know, and, he, and then he kind of has this affect. He's like balsamic vinegar, like, you know, like he's hard or something from New York. And I just adored it and so did everybody else. And then, it, of course, it was mimicked a million and one times, but his was the best to me. And anyway, um, I said all that to say, Elmo is a beloved character, ain't never going away. But Kevin um, Clash, in 2011, either a year or less than a year before uh, Jimmy Savile passed away and then all these revelations came out, you may remember that he resigned from Sesame Street and voicing um, Elmo. He was the voice behind Elmo forever, I think. Or at least when Elmo was became popular and for oh, at least probably two decades or something like that, some very long period of time. Kevin, Sa- uh, Kevin uh, Clash, a black man from Baltimore, actually. I, I just looked it up just to verify, but he was born in Baltimore. And, well, they say Baltimore. He went to Dundalk High School. That means you are not from, I, here's the deal. I've been in Baltimore long enough. I'm not from here, but I've been here for over a decade. He went to Dundalk High School. I think he lived in Turner Station. Turner Station is not Baltimore. Turner Station is in that Dundalk area. Like, Turner Station is in Baltimore, but it's like one of those little city enclaves just off. He did go to, yeah, I I don't know why I'm tripping. I think people put Baltimore because it just sounds easier, but like... He was from Turner Station. That is a, that uh, suburb is a hard term to say. It is a township outside of Baltimore that is predominantly black and very poor and kind of isolated. Um, But so is Dundalk, which is why he went to Dundalk High School um, because that was the closest high school to him. But Dundalk and Turner Station are both low income communities. And just fun fact, when you come to Baltimore, there is no one Baltimore. Um, there is no one Baltimore accent. There isn't. There's a difference between black people's um, Baltimorean accent and, and non-black people's Baltimorean accent, and it really depends on um, if you're non if you're non-black but you're not um, white either. It depends on who you've who you were born and raised around and where you were raised around. Even if you're in Dundalk, even if you're from even if you're from Turner Station, you're 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 um, 
your accent is going to be different if you're uh, than somebody who's from um, Dundalk, unless you grew up around white people in Dundalk. You know what I mean? Like the accents are different. And so anybody that tries to do a Baltimore accent, half the time they're really just mimicking the quote unquote dummy accent of black, black folks in like West Baltimore, East Baltimore. You know what I mean? Um, but that is not the totality of all the accents in Baltimore. So, but then again, people hate on uh, Baltimore accents, but whatever. But Kevin Clash is from Baltimore, uh, Turner Station, really. And anyway, so I remember watching a documentary about Kevin Clash and being so proud that this black man voiced this puppet and really like it's a very beloved puppet too and that's the there was a reason why i loved elmo so much and it was because there was a heart and soul there was really a soul behind this thing but again why does everybody love kermit because kermit was a beloved character from the very beginning why because jim henson put a heart and soul into him as a puppeteer that you know it's really magic and it really takes a lot of skill. And I was just so proud, watched the documentary. I think I even watched the Kevin Clash documentary, which whose name I cannot call. But I remember watching that. Um, I can't remember if it was in the, in the um, I can't remember if it was in the um, theaters or if it was on Netflix itself. But I remember there was a point in that documentary where it was like, oh yeah, I'm gay. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't know why that's relevant to this conversation. I just want to learn. I think it's super, I want to celebrate your success. I did. Why are you bringing this up? And I couldn't figure out why that was a point. Like, it's not that I didn't want him to talk about his whole self, but I just found it odd. It was like a footnote at the end of the documentary. And then flash forward, maybe three or four months. I can't remember when the doc came out. I don't know if it was 2011 or 2010, can't call it. But I distinctly remember not long after the documentary came out, maybe some months, we learned that he's resigned. Kevin Clash resigns from Sesame Street Workshop and voicing Elmo. And and some, you know, publicist reviewed statement comes out like, you know, things in my personal life have detracted or I don't want things in my personal life to, to detract from the great work and, and legacy that, that is Elmo. And so I'm going to take a step back. And then I don't know how much time passed between I read that statement that he resigned and him coming out publicly as gay, like hardcore saying, or maybe, no, no, no. In the documentary, he didn't say that he was gay. He I don't, I don't know. I just, I got the feeling that there was some weirdness in the documentary itself, but overall I enjoyed it because I enjoyed the conversation about, you know, this black man, which is a very big deal being behind a beloved character that everybody loves. And if if I'm honest with you, there's a piece of me that wanted to say, see, we could all just get along. You know what I mean? Like if I'm honest, if I'm honest, that was the, that was the feeling that was motivating me. Um, that's what I was going through at the time. I was just thinking, oh, see there, we could just get all rid of all this race stuff because every once in a while I get so doggone naive to assume that a puppet is going to unite us. But what we know is that puppets can do a whole lot of good and you can't take that away. And so anyway, it comes out that Kevin Clash is gay. He announces that he's gay. 
And then it comes out behind that, that he probably announces that he's gay because there's an allegation that he has abused, he had abused a child, a 23-year-old person. One of the things that we learned in the documentary about Kevin Clash is that he mentored, he moved to New York and he mentored um, young puppeteers, especially young puppeteers of color, to give them a shot because it was so difficult for him. Um, and so he wanted to pave the way, which is what you do. You pave the way for other aspiring folks that look like you um, so that they can have a better opportunity than you had to achieve their dream. And so anyway, a 23-year-old person comes out and shares Kevin, Sam- uh, Kevin. I keep saying Kevin Samuels. Google Kevin Samuels if you don't know who I'm talking about. But Kevin Clash, he alleges that Kevin Clash had... Um, a, a appropriate relationship with him when he was 14. And that's what prompted Clash to share that he was gay. It was because it was a man, a 23-year-old man, or person that identified as male. Um, and so he comes out as gay. He divorces his wife of 20-something years he had divorced his wife of 20-something years by um, a couple of years at this, at this point, by, by the time the, the 2011 rolled around and all of this was um, coming out. But I remember, and I've got to be honest with you, this was also still the time where we were grappling with the legacy of Bill Cosby and whether or not to believe Bill Cosby. And do you know, to, to this day, to this day, I've run into people who don't believe that Bill Cosby did everything that he was accused of doing. And, and... And a lot of that I will attribute, and I might be frustrating somebody at this point, but I attribute a lot of that to you just not wanting to wanting to be able to confront the idea that a person that you idolized is, you idolized a persona, but the person behind the persona is a terrible person who does very bad things. Um, yeah, that's what it is, man. And so I got to admit to you, when the thing came out about Kevin Samuel. Yeah. Kevin Clash. I paid attention to it. I thought that it was a good thing that he was no longer connected to Elmo because Elmo had a was in my heart and had a had a hand in bringing joy to so many children and still does even to this day that I'm glad that he separated himself from that. But I got to be honest with you. I didn't interrogate the feeling. I didn't interrogate my feelings around whether or not he did what he said he did. Not even whether or not he did what he was accused of doing by the 23-year-old person who was then standing up for his 14-year-old self. I don't even think I confronted the idea that this person that had been behind such a beloved character could do, could take advantage of the same people he's trying to inspire. I, I did not interrogate that. So I can appreciate how someone who's still an R. Kelly supporter, who is still an um, um, uh, Bill Cosby supporter, could still be one if you are refusing to interrogate your feelings about what they're alleged to do. Because the thing about it is, even if they didn't do it, let's just ballpark figure the fact that there are so many around that, that nobody has that many enemies in the world. Because that's certainly the conversation, right? And certainly to, to bring it, swinging it back over to Jimmy Savile, that is, in watching that documentary, that's a conversation that is clearly on the lips of whole generations of people in, in Britain right now. 
you know, all of these people are out to get this person. Well, nobody has that many enemies. Nobody has that many enemies that everybody lying. That the same, do you know what I mean? Like, if you can think that 20 people did the same thing to victimize this person, to, to make them a villain, then you also can flip it and say, well, it's also a possibility that this person did the exact, repeated the exact same pattern to 20 different people. If you add the element of stardom and you recognize, we all recognize, how is it that we can't hold two things and two truths in our head that stars get away with stuff and they get paid a lot of money and they're so entitled, but we can't, we don't ever consider, we, we cannot consider that they could be doing some terrible things. Trey Songs is a prime example. There are so many people who are looking at him and don't believe any believe that he's just doing him and that any allegations against him are wholly false false because of his public persona. And that's just the kind of celebrity I think that's a symptom of celebrity worship. But let me get let me get hasten on. The reason why I was interested in the first place, the reason why I didn't hesitate to watch the the Jimmy Savile documentary is because there's a piece of me that still needs, that knows I still need to interrogate my feelings about Kevin Clash and what he's alleged to have done. And I gotta be honest with you, and even doing research about uh, Kevin and the allegation, you know, I didn't even read the allegation. Cause I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting against myself. I'm warring against myself on this whole thing. And it's ridiculous because I don't know Kevin Clash personally. I don't know that man personally. I do not know him personally, yet I feel this protection around him. And it's, it has a lot to do with the fact that he's a black man. Also has a lot to do with the fact that I still connect him to a beloved character that was not, form, you know, wasn't foundational for me, but like was the figure that I saw as bringing joy to the world. And so anyway, I can appreciate how millions of British folks are even to this day still trying to, or maybe running from, what Jimmy Savile is alleged to do. So in the next segment, I'm going to talk as openly and honestly as I can without going into graphic detail about the documentary, Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. So let me get something straight. Um, Jimmy Savile died in 2011. And then these revelations came out. Um, Kevin Clash came out in uh, his documentary, Being Elmo. That's the name of the documentary, like Being Elmo or something like that. Um, He came out in 2012 as being a gay man. Um, his doc came out in 2011. And so I think he came out in 2012 as being gay, but the doc itself came out in 2011, if I'm getting it right. And anyway, the allegations came out soon after that. And that he came out in 2012 as being gay in response to 
the allegations of child abuse. Um, which is a weird response to have, I'm gay. And so that's why I didn't take advantage of a child or a teenager in my care. I don't know. But again, I need to look more into what happened there, um, or at least what's written there. And, you know, going to have to find more than one source. But but we're talking about Jimmy Savile. And what I want to do is, for those of you who don't know who he is, I want to give that background. Um, Sir James Wilson Vincent Savile. Um, and I want to stop right there and say the Sir part, it's like Sir Elton John. He was knighted. J- uh, James Savile, or Jimmy Savile, everybody calls him, was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Um, the documentary shares at the behest of the, one of the final acts of the sitting prime minister at the time. She was outgoing prime minister, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who had been advocating for him to get um, the knighthood for decades because they were close uh, associates. Um, but anyway, his full title is Sir James. And, they, and at, to this point, they haven't, they haven't revoked it. Um, so Sir James Wilson Vincent, Vincent Savile, OBE, um, Order of the British Empire, um, which was an, an honor that was bestowed on him in his career. And then KCSG, which stands for Order of St. Gregory the Great, which is another um, honor that was bestowed upon him. Is this a British honor? Papal Order of Knight. Oh, Lord. Papal Order of Knighthood. So not only did... Oh, from Pope Francis. All right. So not only does he... Uh, is Was he knighted by the Queen of England, but he was knighted by the Pope of the Catholic Church. And for those of you who do not know, James Wilson... Vincent... Wilson Vincent Savile, or... Jimmy Savile was a devout Catholic or, or professed himself to be a devout Catholic. He was born um, October 31st, 1926. Oh, excuse me. And passed away um, October 29th, 2011 in his home. And at, um, one of the things that doc, the documentary shared was that his fingers were crossed. Um, his pointer and uh, index finger were crossed on both hands, which I don't know if that's like an old superstition, superstitious, superstitious trick among Catholics. Um, not trick, but like he was hoping and praying on his way out. Um, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but anyway, that there was just a remark that that's how he was found. Um, and then there was another remark saying that he was so deeply devout uh, such a devout Catholic that even at at the point of his death, he was praying, hoping and praying out the door. Um, anyway, um, and I'm reading his wiki at this point. Um, so he was an English DJ, which let me just be clear. Okay, yeah, DJ is not any other term. It's a disc jockey. So English DJ, TV and radio personality who hosted BBC, BBC shows, including Top of the Pops, 
and Jimmy will fix it, which is a show that was created specifically for him where he would grant, um, basically it was like make a wish foundation only it wasn't for a sick kids. Um, it was literally just you write in, if we pick your letter, you tell us, we, we make your dream come true. Whatever the thing that you want done, <sighs> excuse me, the thing that you want to do, we'll make a whole show of, of Jimmy going around and making your wish come true. Um, he raised an estimated 40 million um, pound, I guess, euro. I think that's the euro symbol. Pound, uh, yeah, 40 million euros for charities. During his lifetime, Savile, which is a whole lot of money, y'all. Um, during his lifetime, Savile was widely praised for his personal qualities and as a fundraiser. And I'll just pause right there. How many people look at, um, who are the people behind the opioid crisis? Who were the people behind the opioid, the family? The, the name is on the tip of my tongue, Dope Sick. Dope Sick was all about it, um, going after this family who was pushing um, opioids Oh, excuse me, especially Oxycontin. I can't remember the name of the family, but y'all know who I'm talking about. Who all of their um, Sackler, the Sacklers. The Sacklers were huge philanthropists, huge philanthropists. Um, and but uh, one of their family members, it's alleged one of their family members and they agreed they went behind him, but there they stood behind him but like that family is the reason why we're dealing with such rampant or at least it's alleged that that family is the reason why we're dealing with such rampant uh excuse me opioid use in in the united states um because of their tactics that even though they knew that they couldn't they knew that they're at the very least they knew that they're uh that Oxycontin wasn't this miracle drug. They also knew that it was highly addictive, but they were, they were selling it as if it wasn't and pushing it to prescribers as if it wasn't highly addictive. Um, anyway, but they were huge philanthropists. And as the story goes, you know, you should, you should look at huge philanthropists with, um, with a magnifying lens because oftentimes you know, people hide behind their char- charitable donations. They hide their misdeeds behind those charitable donations, um, which is, again, you don't want to become too much of a pessimist, but at the same time, like, you being a huge contributor to a fund does not give you the, it, it doesn't excuse you from bad deeds. It doesn't, it doesn't absolve you from bad deeds. But anyway... So he's estimated to raise, he was raised an estimated 40 million for charities during his lifetime. Savile was widely praised for his personal qualities and as a fundraiser. And again, what do you mean your personal qualities? Who knew him personally? Like anyway, whatever. Um, after his death, hundreds of allegations of sexual abuse were made against him, leading the police to conduct, to conclude. Well, let me just stop here. When this thing says hundreds, try 400. 400 and climbing allegations of sexual abuse 
and misconduct. Try 400. Now, how do we get to 400? Well, we do it in decades. Um, He was born in 1926. He became... um, He became a personality, at least a DJ... Excuse me, in 1958. So he started in his 20s. And unfortunately, he started his career in his 20s. And unfortunately, the early allegations came out in his 20s. Um, and so that's how you get to 400. You begin, you begin early in your career. You keep going and... That's how we get to these allegations. But no, more than that, it's not even just that his career spanned multiple decades, but that the allegation is that, and I'll get to this, but his, the allegation is that he used his proximity to the charities and the hospitals that he raised money for to also be his um, hunting ground is the best way I can describe it. So let me so let me just go here. So after his death, hundreds of allegations of sexual abuse were made against him, leading the police to conclude that he had been a predatory sex offender and possibly one of Britain's biggest, uh, Britain's most prolific. There had been allegations during his lifetime, but they were dismissed and accusers ignored or disbelieved. Savile took legal action against some accusers. Okay, so where I want to live is in this last little, these last two sentences. There were, there had been allegations during his lifetime, but they were dismissed and accusers ignored or disbelieved. So over his life, again, it's mentioned that he's, was a huge philanthropist, raised over $40 million for charities. Oh, I'm saying dollars. Oh, 40 million pounds for charities across uh, the UK. Um, And what we learned about this two-part documentary series is a couple of things. So he was a, he, a couple of things. So he went, he was at one time a very famous DJ where you only saw him in person when he was walking around with a microphone. And then when TV became popular in the 40s and 50s, he made the transition. Remember, he was born in 1928. Um, so when he makes the transition, one of the things they say in the documentary, and if you see archival footage of him, you can kind of get this sense too, that he became very charismatic and he adapted to the new medium very easily and very quickly. Um, And not only that, but if I may say this, he kind of adapted to the, to the medium in a way that you would expect or that you do see from very high energy. They used to call them VJs, video jockeys, you know, like doing the countdown videos and all of that stuff. Um, But he's very, but, but no, you watch social, you know, you're on social media, you watch uh, reality TV, and you look back at, for me, I describe his energy as being like on par with 
reality TV, uh, reality TV stars or anyone who's like a talk show host. Like it's the same energy. And many could argue that a lot of talk, talk show hosts kind of pattern, pattern themselves after figures like Jimmy Savile, who made it so, who made himself appear so friendly and so boisterous and so outgoing that you, it was easy for you to see why he became beloved. Um, because he felt like you, you felt like you knew him. And so, you know, you see archival footage of him going around all over the place, being a cool guy, cycling, hanging out with the people, not having bodyguards around, traveling all over the world here, there and everywhere. And you kind of get the sense, like, you know how you see those 1950 starlets and, and stars where you'd have them out in the public with the people and you never saw anything about their personal life because that was part of the magic that this public persona is perceived to be who they are because you'll get more fans that way. You'll get more um, people who are buying your product, whatever the product is, be it a movie or something tangible, you know, they'll, you'll get more fans this way. That's, that, that's what I was thinking when I was just watching this thing, even though I was listening to basically a, a story cra- uh, leading you down a path to how you get to be, how you get to a person that was once at one time beloved for de- decades to being someone who's vilified and is, is known to be one of that country's most prolific serial abusers. Like the documentary did a really good job of doing that. If if there were parts where I felt like I felt like there were pieces missing that I wanted to hear, but there was so much information being shared in this two-part part series that it was just kind of hard for me to process unless you watch the thing over again or unless you grew up with this information. And I'll get to that in a second because I'm certainly not watching this thing again. It was disturbing. But the thing that disturbed me the most was the allegations that came out about this very charismatic, open man that throughout his career said some very weird things, did some very weird things. And by weird, what was probably called weird in the 90s, even early 2000s, 90s, 80s, even 70s, 60s, 50s, what was considered to be weird, we would consider today as being predatory as being creepy, as being um, out of bounds for you to do. Nobody would be smiling and laughing. He would touch people and approach appropriately on camera. He would say, make uh, sexual innu- innuendo in a way that was gross and not funny at all. And actually, but and, and for me, when I'm saying gross and not funny at all, it's like when it's pointed to a person that's not in on the joke. And you see them uncomfortably laughing laughing and shifting in their seat because they're uncomfortable with it, but they don't want to make waves. I can't tell you how many times in the documentary it, it said it, it alluded to that. And then again, maybe, you know, the style of, you know, British documentaries don't hit things hard on the, you know, hit the hammer hard on the nail like we do in the, uh, the United States. We say it deliberately and straight out. We use the words. We say the thing. We don't apply it. We say it. Um... And I know that that's a different, there are different tactics to purveying information than, um, you know, 
in, in different, um, they're just different styles of sharing information. But yeah, in the documentary, it implied that, for instance, there were several women, because it's clear that he, at least publicly, wanted to be seen as a ladies' man. And so he would, throughout the documentary, he would make these weird comments and these weird faces at women on these sets. And again, the way he behaved would be considered harassment today. Case in point, let me give you an example. So he was on some sort of living room TV set. It was meant to look cozy. And somehow or another, he had gotten a blanket and wrapped it up or the rug and wrapped it up to make it look like a sleeping bag. And then he looks at this young, at this point, he's well in his 50s, probably in his 60s at this point, but definitely in his 50s. This is probably around the 80s, early 90s. And he's in the sleeping bag and he's having this banter with this woman um, who's probably in her 20s. If she's a day, she's like 22, 23. Well, shoot, maybe she's 26, but like she's in her 20s. And they're having this repertoire or this repartee And there's a moment where it's clear that like he's training his eyes on her and he's making eyes on her. And then he's like, he's asked some sort of question and then his response is something, something like, um, I wish you were, I I like to kiss young girls in sleeping bags. And, And just pausing for a second, this is a 50 plus person, 50 plus person saying that he likes to kiss young girls under the covers. And the woman that he was looking at when he said it and everybody on set just laughed. And the thing about it is, let me pause, because jokes like that, maybe they weren't made in the United States, but other types of jokes like that were made. Like, for instance, remember in True Colors? Remember in True Colors where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in a car with the guy that is cheating with his wife. Because apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger is a, is a, is a pencil pusher, um, muscle-bound pencil pusher who's not exciting, and so his wife, he believes that his, his wife is either cheating on him or this scumbag that's sitting next to him wants to cheat with his wife. And anyway, he makes this lewd comment about a woman that he's seeing that he doesn't know that the the car salesman he's it, I think the guy that's in the car with Arnold Schwarzenegger is supposed to be a car salesman and so he's in this car and there it's like a convertible this is I remember the scene vividly because it's creepy not the scene itself the scene is supposed to be Arnold Schwarzenegger's character like finally unraveling and beginning to get his his uh, revenge on this guy that he believes is trying to sleep with his wife. And anyway, this guy is describing a woman that he doesn't realize is Arnold Schwarzenegger's character's wife. But in describing her and how beautiful she is, of course, because he's a pig, he starts talking about her body and how gorgeous her body is. And then he remarks about her. He makes a comment about her butt. And I won't make the comment because it's gross. Like, it's revolting. But he makes a comment that compares her behind to that of a young boys behind. Those kind of jokes were made all the time. That is literally in a movie from the 90s out of Hollywood. 
And I'd heard that phrase. I'm not even going to repeat it, but I guarantee you, you'll find it. I'm, I'm sure somebody is isolated on YouTube at this point. You'll be able to pull it out and find it. It's from True Colors. I think that was like a 1990, 1991, something like that film. But that comment was made, I know for a fact, well, not that I know for a fact, but I know I've heard that phrase in comment in, in um, movies from the middle 90s, late 90s, probably even the 2000s. I'll go you one better. Never Been Kissed with Drew, Bar- Drew Barrymore. Look at the picture. Look at the cover of that Drew Barrymore picture, that, that film. She's meant to look like an innocent little girl. Look at her. She was probably well into her 20s at that point, but she's meant to look like a young, innocent thing. She's meant to look like a child. That's gross. This is Hollywood. But then again, we had the Harvey Weinsteins of the world who were victimizing people for years, for decades. We had the Bill Cosby's of the world who were allegedly victimizing people for years. The, the stories go on. James Franco. There's allegations against James Franco. Uh, Roman Pulaski. Um, I can't even think of all the men who've been accused of and 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 in Roman Polanski's convic- case convicted and ran away from um sentencing. Um and Hollywood still reveres him. But anyway, so like lest you think that only creepy things were happening or or people like powerful people like Jimmy Savile were being allowed to say and do creepy things in the UK only this is global baby and let's bring it right on to the United States and, and start calling out some names. But let me get back to Jimmy Savile. And so the documentary shares, again, it's a two part documentary. It shares in his ascension in his career and the notoriety that he get. It, it shares all the creepy things that on camera he did as a way to kind of lay the foundation for the possibility of, for all of us confronting the idea of all the even more creepy things and dastardly things that he did behind closed doors. But let me keep talking about his proximity to his charity, opening up doors for him to be able to create new hunting grounds for alleged victims. So he spent a lot of money or he raised a lot of money for a charity or he... He, well, let me just back up. He volunteered at, well, let me, hold on. Let me, let me say something else. Okay, I got, um. I had to uh, pause it really quickly, but I'm back. Okay, so there is a very big, um, and this is, I'm sure it's big by anybody's standards, but there is a um, hospital that supports uh, uh, individuals who are paraplegic um, or living or differently abled. I'll say, I I apologize um, if, if that term is offensive to some. Um, who are differently abled um, for one reason or another. And he raised a buku money for it. And it's a huge, it's a huge 
I don't want to call it a hospital, but it's definitely a huge facility for folks to go get rehabilitation, treatment, for them to get support, get access to equipment that will help them be able to be more mobile and things like that. He raised a ton of money for that in the 80s, like probably 70s, 80s. And um, there's also um, one of the largest, I don't know if it's the largest today, but there is uh, an institution for um, individuals who, um, I don't even know the proper term, but folks who are living with a mental health condition who've also committed crimes, um, who've been mandated to, instead of going to prison to serve out their time, have been um, mandated to go to this institution. It was the Broadmoor Institution. And I've had, I had heard of the Broadmoor Institution and I, I kind of liken it to Bellevue. Like I know many British people um, have heard of Bellevue before in New York because it's, you know, probably the same reason why I've, I've heard of Broadmoor before stories cross the, the water and, and you hear about it from different people and you hear flights of fancy and then you hear tales that you wish were fake, um, but actually were true of those institutions. And so, so yeah, I'd heard of Broadmoor before. I didn't realize it was as big as it was, um, but at the same time, I'm also not surprised. So he volunteered at Broadmoor for many years and then he became something like the director of Broadmoor without any qualifications whatsoever, largely because he was still very much at the height of his career um, as this British figure that everybody loved, beloved British figure. And so he was made the director of this facility. Um, He also, in his time, volunteered not as an orderly, but the person that maybe it was an orderly. Maybe it's the equivalent of an orderly, the person that that pushes the um, gurneys around in the hospital from like, yeah, yeah, pushes them here, here, there and everywhere. Um, uh, Yeah, he volunteered like a couple of times a week to do that um, while he was still a famous star. Oh, of orderly specifically to take people to go get x-rays. That's what it was. Or if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or one of the things that he did was specifically to go take people to get x-rays. Um, and so you see him volunteering at these, these places. You see him championing, you know, raising buku dollars for these... Um, for these facilities to be built to help people. And he really does help people. Um, You know, just imagine one of the biggest stars you've ever known or biggest star to you. You you go to the hospital and you're being, you wake up and you're being pushed around in your gurney by this person who you already think is pretty cool. And then they're smiling faces just looking at you and they're comforting you in your time of need. That's pretty cool. That would be pretty cool for anyone. Um, or you see this person that you think is well-beloved and pretty cool raising buku dollars for, for more care and support for a thing that you are impacted by. You know what I mean? Like, 
not only is he beloved, this person is a beloved figure and that you've seen them on TV and you've grown to like them because you only see them do, you only ever see them do really awesome things, especially if they already have a TV show where they're helping kids live out their, their fantasies, you know, you see all these positive things. Of course you would be even more, um, supportive of this person if you're seeing them coming to your aid in your time of need. The allegations though, again, another reason why we can get to 400 so quickly and beyond is because many of the allegations from individuals, oh, one more thing, one more thing. Um, you see this beloved figure that everybody in the country loves and he, this person is coming to your school and spends a lot of money, like donates a lot of money to your school, like millions of dollars to your school. And you know that they've been donating millions of dollars to your school and, and the school administrators love them. Um, and you love them too because everybody in your family knows them. You see the great things that they do on TV. You read about them in the news and all of that stuff. And so, and so, yeah, it's easy for you to become endeared to this person because of all the great things that you see and even firsthand how they're even helping your life. But the allegations come from these very charities that he's and these schools that he alleged to support. They're very disturbing cases. One of the most, I, I can't even think of the most disturbing, but one that stood out to me is there was this, these twin sisters in the UK and they were little black girls and they were institutionalized in Broadmoor. I think that's one of the reasons why I remember Broadmoor is because I remember hearing about the story about these two young girls who never spoke to anyone, never spoke a word to anyone but communicated with each other. And so these little girls ended up committing arson, a series of arson, um, which uh, uh, arson on a, a series of buildings, which ended in like thousand, like so much fiscal, big ticket item damage is what these arsons ended up um, costing. And so they were institutionalized in Broadmoor. And they, Jimmy Savile met them when they were teens. And there is a report, and this is about as graphic as I'm gonna get. Um, so just trigger warning. There was a reporter who was specifically following these young girls because it's an interesting story two young girls who, two, two people who, two identical twins who've been convicted of heinous crime that don't talk to each other, that don't talk to anyone, but do talk to each other and have that's been, that's been the way they've been all their lives. Of course, it would be worth a story. And so this woman reporter was chronicling, you know, just, I don't know what she exactly she was doing. I think I kind of missed that part. But like, I don't know that she was their bi biographer, but I think she was definitely just keeping track of the girls and wanting to keep um, submitting stories about them. Um, and anyway, she remarks that there was a time she only met Jimmy Savile one time, but it was in Broadmoor when he came to see these two 
girls who were teenagers at the time, if they, yeah, they were either teenagers or 20 somethings, but they were probably, maybe they were teenagers. Um, and she describes in this incident where Jimmy Savile introduced himself and then said, pointing at the first twin, I'll have you first, and then to the second twin, and then I'll have you second. And the implication there is that the have meant he would have them sexually. And you understand the idea here is that anyone who's in an institute, who's been institutionalized at either in a, correct, a corrections facility or at uh, a hospital, behavioral health hospital, especially if they're being detained under, against their will, they cannot give consent. Even if they are the age of consent, you can't give consent because you're in a place against your will. And so there's an argument to be made that maybe these twins weren't intellectually um, dealing with any intellectual disabilities, but they were certainly dealing with a mental health condition. And I still don't know what that condition is, and we'll take a moment to look it up later, but this is one story where this reporter was sharing that these girls were serious, needed serious help and had been institutionalized for many years by the time they met Jimmy Savile. And she was sure that he took advantage of them by that statement alone. Because who makes a joke like that, by the way? <clears throat> she doesn't say that he was joking, but who does make a joke like that? No one, unless you're a predator. And so in, in telling that story, the documentary shares that many of the allegations of misconduct come from folks who had cried out against Jimmy saying that he had done, he had acted inappropriately toward them, but not, no one believed him. People from the hospitals who were going, who were there because he was getting an x-ray or they were trying to convalesce, saying that Jimmy had done something, had acted inappropriately with them, but no one believed them. Also come from schoolgirls who... The, the documentary does spend a few minutes on this, shared that when he came to his school, when he came to their school, the school that he had donated millions to, that he would make them perform sexual acts on him and then abuse them sexually. And there's an allegation that he had abused someone as young as eight, I think. And someone as old as 75. So what that tells you is, well, I need more clarity on that because I don't know if the allegation is that he had abused older adults who were in the, in Broadmoor because they wouldn't be believed anyway, or that a person that came out as being a victim was 75, but he was a victim, but they were recounting a story of them being a victim of, uh, being victimized by Jimmy when they were a kid. Like, I don't know exactly, but the documentary 
shared at the end of it that there are over 400 cases against um, Jimmy Savile and the age of the victims range from 8 to 75, which is gut-riching all on its own. And then you recognize that some of the, um, some of the people that Jimmy is alleged to have harmed actually went to the police, but they didn't believe them. And what's more, <clears throat> the documentary alleges that Jimmy did this thing and they actually use archival recordings of him saying as much <clears throat> that Jimmy spent a lot of time getting a particular, I think it's the Leeds Police Department, to be on his side so that any time an allegation came up to them that they would dismiss it. It would never see the light of day. And that if a uh, trial if a, if a, oh, excuse me. If a case did go to trial, <clears throat> there wouldn't be a sufficient enough evidence evidence for it to continue, and that he did, in fact, sue many of the people who complained against him. He he certainly took legal action against some of his accusers, and won. And now there's a point, there's a point where there's a mention of him and the high-powered attorneys that he employed to help him beat cases. And there's one particular such instance where the son of a very powerful attorney that um, represented... Um, celebrities in defamation cases and things like that remarked to his son and a few other of his colleagues in no certain terms that Jimmy is not who you think he is and actually he very well might be a pedophile and so trying to reconcile the idea that his lawyer knew that he was probably guilty Well, let me, let me take it back and say, lawyers have a job to do. I don't begrudge a lawyer for being a good lawyer. I do hold people responsible if they know someone has abused children and they do nothing, which is the allegation here that several people, not just Savile's lawyer, but producers of his shows, tour managers, his biographer, people that worked close with it, closely with him in some capacity, even people he considered to be close friends, were complicit, complicit in the cover-up of his abuse. What's more, there's a weird point in the second episode of the documentary where they talk about his close proximity to the royal family and prime minister um, at the time, Prime Minister um, Thatcher. That Princess Diana, Charles, and even 
the Duke of Edinburgh would write him and seek his advice. Allegedly, all while he's piled up several cases of abuse and probably was still abusing people when he was befriending these royal people, this, this royal class of people. Seems kind of wild to me. But then again, isn't that how it's happened? Harvey Weinstein has friends. He has people to this day that still support him. Bill uh, Cosby has friends. He has people to this day that still support him. R. Kelly has friends. Remember that woman? and Or, or huge supporters. Remember that woman who used a big chunk of her legal settlement from her child's unlawful death? A wrongful death suit, like a claim against a hospital or something like that. She used a good chunk of that money to get him out of jail the first time. And then we, he went right back because there was another allegation against R. Kelly. Like these people have friends because they're charming. They know how to turn the charm on. Doesn't stop them from being predators. And again, I'm saying allegedly, allegedly predators because I don't want no smoke. Anyway, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think, I don't know what sickens me the most about this whole thing. Again, I said, I started this conversation out by saying this documentary disturbed me. I don't know what disturbs me most, the sheer volume of cases against Henry Savile and or James Savile recognizing that's just the people who feel comfortable coming forward. That doesn't represent the toll, the total number of people he actually victimized or who could come. So either people who you were missing people who don't feel comfortable coming forward or people who are, are not on this mortal plane who can't come forward. So I don't know if that makes me more sick or the fact that if this is true, he could have been stopped many decades ago and we wouldn't have nearly as many cases. I don't know what's sicker. Or better still, again, I'm still, my own in my own heart, I'm still ga- grappling with... I mean, I did a whole document, I did a whole episode on... Um, what is it? Surviving R. Kelly, the first season of Surviving R. Kelly, where I talked about how me and my friends were kind of part of the problem of making it okay for R. Kelly to, to, to allegedly victimize young girls, sexually abuse young girls, teenage girls, because we didn't see them as innocent. We saw them as complicit, even though in the eyes of the law, they weren't complicit. Yeah, I don't. I guess my where I was going with that is, I don't know what makes me sicker. The other two things that I mentioned, or the fact that there are still people denying that Jimmy Savile did any wrongdoing. There's a woman on the documentary that was that was a beneficiary of the clinic or the center that he opened for individuals who are differently abled. Um, She was in a, I think she was in a wheelchair. She had spinal issues. And so she cited Jimmy Savile and him 
pushing so hard to get that um, center opened for the reason why she has the quality of life that she has. She, she remarked that her parents were told that she wouldn't live beyond 10 years old. And here I am now. And you look at her and you think she's well into her 50s, probably closer to her 60s. At the very least, well into her 50s. And what an achievement. And so not that it makes me sick that she would still be still have such love for him. But like, if you never saw, it's easy for you to only go off of what you see and how you were treated. It's harder to factor in that other people might've been treated differently than you. And, and reconcile the person you knew with the person that somebody else knew and how different they are. I don't know. Those are the things that are most disturbing to me. They're just small things that are disturbing, like the look in his eyes in certain um, documentaries, like certain TV spots and, and interviews. There's a look in his eyes that feels at one time vacant and then at other times like it's plotting. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just, this documentary disturbed me and I wanted to talk about it. Not because I wanted to disturb you, but because we got to talk about this more uh, as a way to stop it. It doesn't give you the keys to the kingdom on stopping it, but at least the more we talk about things like this, hopefully the more smart and savvy we can become about exposing people, predators like this. And also not letting celebrity give you a pass and allow you carte blanche to anything you ever want, including people. I don't know. Anyway, that's the doc. It's not, this is, this wasn't a sunny conversation. It's just, I wanted to I wanted to talk about it because it just moved me so. And then it also, like I said, got to, like I said in the beginning, got to me thinking about Kevin Clash. And, and I really do want to go back into that, that case. Because one of the things that we have to do is believe, you, you have to believe victims until it's proven that they actually weren't. And even then you need to take it with a grain of salt. Because of our history, globally, with people not believing accusers and citing the few people who falsely accuse folks as the rationale for not believing someone who's corroborating, who's presenting evidence on a thing that you know is probably true, but you don't want it to be, I guess. I'm thinking about the police officers, like the sheer volume. You really think all of them were lying? And that goes back to my other point. You don't have that many enemies. Nobody does. Nobody has that many en- enemies that different stories can come at different times from different people, like even separated by decades, and it still be the same formula. That feels weird to me. And it feels like a cop-out too. Anyway... 
yeah, there's no nice way to wrap this up. Um, hopefully next week I'll talk about something that's more interesting. Well, not more interesting, but maybe a little bit more upbeat. I'll really work to do that. Um, hopefully you didn't stick around if this is not a subject matter that you did want to listen to. But if it was, you know what I would love to be? In? I, I would love to hear from somebody from the UK who can describe what it was like for the older adults in their life, even them, to grapple with the idea that the person that they grew up and loved and called probably Uncle Jimmy was accused of all of these cases of sexual misconduct against minors, against people who could not speak up for themselves or were not believed. What has that process been like? I know we're decade removed by now, but what was that process like? And are your family members still in denial? Like, I have family members that's, that believe R. Kelly didn't do it. That um, Bill Cosby didn't do it. Harvey Weinstein was messed up, but I think they were out to get him a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, I've, I've heard, certainly heard that sentiment online. I can't say that my family has ever shared that piece, but there are distance cousins of mine that don't believe R. Kelly did what he did. Or at least was criminally negligent. Or criminally responsible, you know what I mean? So just be curious to hear from somebody from the UK who can speak to this. Because that's a powerful thing. And also, yeah, at some point I'm just going to read more about Kevin Clash. And get into that and form my own mind about it. But anyway, I hate that this was a bummer, but it's something that needed to be talked about. So hopefully you can find some joy in your day today to do a palate cleanser. There are other episodes of mine that you can go to that are palate cleansers um, so that you can transition into your day. So. All right. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for spreading this episode or sharing this episode or rating this thing five stars or more because at the or four or five stars, because that at the end of the day, that's going to help me. That that really does help me keep doing this thing that I do spread the reach of the show, allow more people to listen to it, which makes me happy. So thank you for contributing to my happiness. Um, now, I hope you have a good day. Good evening, whatever time you're listening to this. I hope you're able to finish that project. Don't respond to that email. It's not worth it right now. Sit on it. Respond to it in the morning. Don't return that phone call right now. You know what it's about. Call them back later. There's no rush on this thing now. Take a breath. Be kind to yourself. Until next time.